Welcome to Art Laws. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Art Laws is a podcast that explores cultural outlaws, both present and past, from artists and filmmakers to musicians and writers. Moises Kaufman is a Tony and Emmy-nominated playwright and director, best known for his revolutionizing plays that sensitively probe questions of culture and sexuality. As co-founder and artistic director of Titanic Theatre Project, Kaufman has been one of the most important voices in American theater over the past three decades. Born in Venezuela to Orthodox Jewish parents, Kaufman came to New York in 1987 to study experimental theater at NYU's Tisch School of the Arts. It was during this time of great social upheaval that Kaufman began to consider new ways in which stories could be told on stage. By exploring and bending traditional formal elements, Kaufman set out to define a new theatrical experience. This exploration led to two groundbreaking theatrical debuts, Gross Indecency, The Three Trials of Oscar Wilde, and The Laramie Project. While Kaufman's work is experimental in nature, his productions have always reached wide audiences and attracted some of the top actors in the world, including Jessica Chastain, Jane Fonda, and Robin Williams. His Broadway credits include The Heiress, 33 Variations, and the Pulitzer and Tony Award-winning I Am My Own Wife by Doug Wright. A recipient of the National Medal of Arts presented by President Barack Obama in 2016, Kaufman continues to examine our times and push boundaries on stage while tackling society's crucial issues. We welcome Moises Kaufman to Art Laws. In November of 1998, you and members of the Tectonic Theater Project traveled to the small city of Laramie, Wyoming, where 21-year-old gay college student Matthew Shepard had been murdered. Over two years, you would conduct over 200 interviews and travel back and forth from New York with your company. These testimonies you gathered would become the play, The Laramie Project. As outsiders coming to this small community, I can't help but be reminded of Truman Capote and how much of the experiences in Inkle Blood mirrors sort of this idea. I'm wondering how were you and the rest of the Tectonic team initially received in Laramie? Well, uh, Truman Capote in Cold Blood was definitely an inspiration for us as we went to Laramie. There was something that he achieved by spending that amount of time with the perpetrators that allowed him to write that book. And the other thing that was interesting about Capote was that, that he was really doing an experiment in form trying to create a novel based on, on the time that he had spent with them. So he definitely was an influence. When we first got to Laramie, it was uh, five weeks after the murder. And uh, what we didn't know at the time is that the town had been bombarded with media. If you remember, uh, when Matthew Shepard was murdered, the, the, the news of the murder, of the fact that he was tied to that fence and left to die for so many hours, really caught fire in the media. And it was one of the reasons why we wanted to go to Laramie and write this play. Because at that time, there were about a thousand anti-gay crimes that were committed every year. Uh, but for some reason, this one resonated. This one was the one where we as a nation said, look at what's happening. Right. And there are many, many theories about why that one resonated and not the, you know, 998 others. But, um, you know, some people say because the fact that he was tied to that fence, read like a crucifixion, mm. and that you can't deal with that kind of imagery in this culture without getting an incredible amount of attention. Other people said that, you know, banal reasons, like he was very photogenic. 
you know, even though he was 21, he was, he looked like he was 14. He was slight. Uh, he was very young looking. So it was a, it was a phase that was media ready. Uh, other people say it was because, you know, he was white. So that, you know, had a, had an African-American person been beaten like that or a, or a trans Latino person being beaten like that, they wouldn't have gotten the same amount of attention. So when we got to Laramie, what we noticed was that, was that the town had been very, very, very beaten by the media because the media portrayed the town as a town of hillbillies and cowboys. And uh, they truly portrayed the town as a very retrograde community and as a community that, well, of course, something like this could happen in the wild, wild west, but it wouldn't happen anywhere else in America. And what a lot of the people in the community were feeling was, wait a minute, you know, number one, Laramie is the hub of the University of Wyoming. You know, Laramie is, is, is one of the most liberal towns in all of Wyoming. And the truth is that when we spent the time that we spent there, what we realized was, was that the striking thing was not how different Laramie was from the rest of the country, but how similar. And in fact, every time that the play gets produced or the film gets screened, the, the feedback that we get is, oh, Laramie is just like my town. Right. So when we first got to Laramie, what we did is we made a connection with the head of the theater department, Rebecca Hilker, at the University of Wyoming. And she had seen our work. She knew of our work. She knew the kind of work that we did. So she was eager to introduce us to some members of the community. And from her friends, we got a sense of relief. Oh, oh, okay, so this is a theater company that's going to come and spend some time with us and really try and listen to our story. So in that sense, that, that part of the, the way that the town received us was very good and very uh, encouraging. But yes, we also found people who said, I don't want to talk to you. Please don't, don't continue telling this story. You know, Laramie has gotten a horrific black eye in the media. We have been portrayed as the hate crime capital of America. We don't want any more press. Mm. Haven't we had enough? So we did get some of that as well. Well, the play was not only a reaction to the hate crime, but also a really active response where activism meets theater. I mean, you literally took your company to the scene of the crime and investigated the crime, a type of documentary theater. So I'm just curious what beyond the media, what sparked this idea of actually going to the scene of the crime and making this your process? Sonic Theater Project is an experimental theater company, and we're a laboratory. We are interested in always asking the question, how does the theater speak? How does the theater communicate with a contemporary audience? How does the theater create narratives that make the most use of what is theatrical? How do we make narratives that are different from film and television? So that has been the question that has kind of elicited all of our work. Right before the Laramie Project, I had written a play called Gross Indecency, The Three Trials of Oscar Wilde. Mm -hmm. And uh, that play, I had used the actual transcripts of the trials of Oscar Wilde. And it was the first time the Tectonic Theater Project had worked in this fashion. And what I found was that, that although Oscar Wilde was tried for gross indecency with other male persons, that was the, the, the charge, the legal charge, um, when I read the transcripts of the trial, I found two things. Number one is many, many of the questions were about Oscar Wilde, the artist, not about Oscar Wilde, the homosexual. And so the lawyer would stand in a court of law in Victorian England and read to Oscar Wilde from 
The Picture of Dorian Gray, which is Oscar Wilde's novel. And he would read a, a chapter or a paragraph, and he would say to Oscar Wilde, is this chapter, is this paragraph moral or immoral? You know, there would be a, a section of, of the picture of Dorian Gray that depicted the attraction of one man towards another. And the lawyer would read that section and question Wilde on whether his art was moral or immoral. To which Wilde famously reply, a book cannot be moral or immoral. It can only be well written or badly written. And uh, wow. um, so, so the first thing that I noticed was that the, tr that the transcripts told me that, that it was as much a trial of the artist as it was a trial of the homosexual. But the second thing that I found in reading the transcripts was that, that those words captured 100 years ago on paper from the people who were there told the story of how Victorian society felt not only about homosexuality, not only about art, but about education, right? About religion, about class. So that unwittingly, in their own words, Victorians were telling us what were the ideological pillars that formed the structure of Victorian thought. And that was a gigantic realization for me, that people in those transcripts were telling us so much more about their culture that they thought they were telling us. They thought they were speaking about wild, but they were speaking about themselves. So the idea when Matthew Shepard was murdered was, can we go to Laramie, talk to the people of the town, and create the same kind of document that records not only how the people of Laramie were feeling about the murder, but how they were feeling about religion and education and class and economic disparity, and gender identity, and masculinity. And the hope was that in capturing these responses, we would be able to, to create an X-ray of not only how Laramie was at at the end of the millennium, but where America was at at the end of the millennium. And not only in relationship to homosexuality, but to all the other things that I just mentioned. Yeah. What an exciting process and groundbreaking for theater, I think, in both cases. But this play, The Laramie Project, really brought attention to the lack of hate crime laws in several states beyond Wyoming. So you made a social impact. And what, if any, legislative changes did you see happen as a result of this project? That's a good question. The, the way that we've experienced that legislative change happens is that it, there's a series of steps, right? Mm -hmm. First, there is a change in the communal dialogue. The way people speak, the words that they use change, right? As a result of Matthew Shepard, the conversation in the town of Laramie and in the state of Wyoming changed, right? The things that were able to be said were not, no longer able to be said. Homophobic things, you know, that, that were said before, you know, they, were, they had to be removed from the public arena as a result of Matthew Murph's murder. I think that after that, the, the dialogue begins to change, then what, what ends up happening is that, that the way that the humans are treated begins to change. And then there, there is a change at, you know, at very different levels of the culture. It is, the final thing is that the laws begin to reflect what's happening in the community. It is very rare that it happens the other way around, mm -hmm. where a law precedes a community's changing. And when that happens, we often see great progress. But yes, as a result, what ended up happening was that, that in Wyoming for the next 10 years, there was no, 
hate crime legislation that passed. It, we had to wait until Obama came in and he passed the Matthew Shepard, James Byrd Hate Crime Prevention Act that, that that happened. But but it's so moving that when Obama finally passed the hate crime legislation, it had Matthew Shepard's name on it. That's great. Talking about this change in dialogue that you're referring to, when you brought the Laramie Project back to Laramie after its off-Broadway premiere, what was that like? So what was the response there? Well, what was interesting was that, that you know, after spending a year going back and forth to Laramie, we really had captured something about, you know, how the people of Laramie felt. And in, as you know, in the Laramie Project, we use the names of our interviewees. We don't dramatize. We are using what they said. So it was a terrifying experience for us as a theater company to go back because these people had entrusted us with their innermost thoughts about this very, very difficult experience, right? And now, you know, we had created a play. We had 200 hours, we had uh, 400 hours of interviews and we had to make, you know, a play that was two and a half hours. So there were 397 and a half hours that didn't make it into the play. Wow. So when we talk about you doing this kind of work, you know, when you, when you take 400 hours of interview and you, and you make, you know, a two and a half hour play, you know, one is the author, right? The theater company was the author. We were, this is not what, the, what happened in Laramie. I mean, this is what this very specific group of people with a very specific mindset, right? Who are, some of whom are straight, some of whom are gay, some of whom are Latinx, some of whom are white, some of whom are, but all of whom are artists from New York City come. And the play is a, as much about the meaning of the two cultures as it is about what happened in Laramie. So we were very worried, you know, have we, did we get part of it wrong? Would people would be upset at the portrayal? Would, you know, there were all these questions about how, how they were going to encounter this artifact that we had manufactured out of their words. But the response was incredibly moving. It was funny because the play began and all of a sudden a character would come on stage and there was a pocket of the audience that would giggle or that would gasp and then it hit us that the person that had been portrayed on stage, that was being portrayed on stage, was in the audience, surrounded by their family. It's incredible. So there was, there was this real, real moment of reckoning. And, you know, when you go to theater school, they tell you that the original reason for theater was to create a sense of catharsis, communal catharsis, right? Mm -hmm. That when the Greeks started to kind of codify theater as an art form, that what they were trying to do is that they were trying to experiment with the new idea of democracy, right? So in the Greek theater, there is a chorus, right? And the chorus is meant to stand for the people. And um, they were using the stage as a way to, to kind of construct a narrative that would allow us to construct democracy. And I felt being in that theater, in the University of Wyoming Theater, where we performed the Laramie Project, that there was something very primal about that encounter a community going to the safety of a theater space to re-examine one of the most painful moments in their history. And it was cathartic. It was cathartic for them. It was cathartic for the actors, right? We were saying, this is what you told us. We're going to show it to you what you have been through. And, and the thing that happened that I wasn't expecting was that people said things to us that they hadn't said to their neighbors, right? People said things to us that, that, you know, we sat with each interviewee one hour, two hours, 
So they were able to really look into their hearts and souls and minds and try and make sense of this very nightmarish event that happened in their town. So what ended up happening is that when they came to see the play, they were listening to their own neighbors say things that they hadn't said to each other. Wow. So in that sense, the, the theater, the theatrical space, was providing the most honest and the most undiluted way for that community to connect with one another. When the play ended and the lights went down, there was a lot of uh, sobbing in the darkness. You could hear a lot of people crying. And uh, I had told the stage manager not to bring the lights on until the applause began. And we sat in darkness for, you know, three or four minutes, which, you know, feels like an eternity in a situation like that. And then somebody at the, all the way in the back of the house went like this. <laughs> like a very, 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 you know, formal and very, very clean way of, of starting the applause. And that broke that moment of meditation. And then people started applauding. And then it was a, it was a very, very, very thunderous moment. Because I don't say this as a self-congratulatory way. They were applauding so loudly for us. I think they were applauding so loudly for themselves. They were applauding so loudly because they felt like their experience resonated with what we created. They were applauding so loudly because the theatrical experience had transcended the kind of entertainment that one has grown to expect from theater in America. And so it, it, was, it was very, very moving. And when the lights came out on the actors, the actors themselves were crying. Right, because it was the culmination of a year's worth of work. They were so invested in making sure that they had, as one of our characters said, told the story correctly. So it was very, very cathartic for both actors and audience members. That's just such a beautiful story, and, and it gives me the chills. Because also, it sounds like there was this incredible connection that actors look for with the audience, and this is beyond what is normal for theater in terms of the personal connection. I think that's correct, yes. Mm -hmm. It's very beautiful. So many of the performances in the U.S. were picketed by followers of Fred Phelps from the Westboro Baptist Church. They were known for their extreme views against homosexuality, among other things, and they would pick up funerals of gay people. So they are portrayed in the play picketing Matthew Shepard's funeral as they did in real life. This is an example of art imitating life, imitating art. It's almost reality theater, which no one else was doing. Do you think that the picketing fueled the performances even more and fomented more widespread activism? Yes, I think it did. I think I always say that I'm very grateful to Fred Phelps because what he was doing was so horrific. You know, his sign said, God hates fags. They said, Matthew Shepard is in hell. They said all of these things, right? And on the one hand, you are horrified that the parents of Matthew Shepard had to see those signs during the, the funeral. But in another way, there is this thing, there's a, a certain part of the religious landscape of America that is incredibly homophobic, right? When we were asking questions around Laramie, whenever somebody said something homophobic, about 90% of the times it was followed by a reference to religion or their church or their pastor. A certain segment of religious beliefs in America is one of the things that is most violently fueling homophobia in our culture. So the difference between Fred Phelps and those other parts of the population is that those other religious sects 
have much more veiled discourse as to how their homophobia is presented, right? So you will go to church and you will hear a pastor say, well, love the sinner, hate the sin, right? We don't hate anybody. We only hate the sin. But to me, that is a very veiled and very, very hypocritical stance. Because if you're an 11-year-old child, right, and you're going to that church and you're beginning to feel that you're homosexual, and you hear your pastor say, well, homosexuality is a sin, love the sinner, hate the sin, you're teaching this child to hate herself, right? So the thing that I found very powerful about what Fred Phelps was doing, in the theater we talk a lot about subtext, right? What are the words that the actor is saying, but what are the thoughts that the actor is having? And to me, God hates fags is another way of saying, you know, love the sinner, hate the sin. What Fred Phelps was doing was he was, he was speaking the subtext, right? Right. When there are so many, you know, when we were in Laramie, the Mormon church was, doing, was spending millions of dollars uh, beginning to talk against same-sex marriage. Why in the world should a religious institution, you know, participate in the, the civil dialogue and the civic dialogue, you know, about legislation? And so, yes, yeah, so Frank Phelps kind of served as a lightning rod that helped clarify a lot of the subjects of what a lot of other institutions were doing. The other thing that happened, you know, we have had the great good fortune that in the last 20 years, the play has been one of the most performed plays in America every single year since it opened. And in the first few years, while Fred Phelps was still alive, Fred Phelps would go and picket productions of the play. Oh, God. And so what would happen is that, number one, for the audience, I felt that it was a, a terrific thing to have happened because they mm -hmm. saw that what we were portraying wasn't fiction. Right. It was, it was live and it was happening right outside the doors of their theater. But the other thing that happened is that I feel that when the actors came to the theater to perform and they saw Fred Phelps outside their own theater protesting their performance, I think that it rekindled something for them. Now, for Tectonic Theater Project, we want our work to always exist at the intersection of the personal, the political, and the social. We believe that art has the highest ministry, and certainly higher ministry than social sciences or than politics, because art can address human beings holistically, not only in their brain, but in their hearts, in their spirit, and remind them of the social contracts that they make with one another. So when I think that the actors were coming to perform the play, they realized that, that all theater is political and that the words that they utter on that stage are not only meant to reach the hearts and minds of the audiences in that house, but are meant to make a bigger statement about what kind of social contracts we have with one another, the communities where the play is being performed. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking, just taking that further, but in terms of history, I mean, there's a generation now that maybe they don't know about Matthew Shepard, they don't know about Stonewall, they haven't experienced AIDS. Is it the artist's responsibility, is it Tectonic's responsibility to pass on this history? What has been striking to me is that a lot of the people performing the play now had not been born when Matthew Shepard was murdered. And to me, there's something very powerful about that, about theater as oral, as oral history. 
right? Theater as the record of this event. And history is transferred from one generation to other generations in many different ways, right? Sometimes the history of the, of the parents are bestowed on the children in their behavior. So the children don't know what the parents went through, but they're getting the result of the experiences of the parents, right? I think theater has a very, very important role in how history is recounted. And to me, what's interesting is that, that when you go to see a play, um, all the things that have been said a million times, you're in a room with other spectators and with the bodies of the actors, right? You're all breathing the same air. So that's a very specific event. But even more than that, the spectators spend two hours and a half with the people of Laramie as portrayed by the actors in the play. But the actors who are on that stage are spending four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks rehearsing the words of the people of the town of Laramie. So their connection to history is much more visceral because they're not watching the play. They're reenacting the experience that the people of Laramie had. So to me, the rehearsal process as a way of recalibrating history, as a way of curating history, as a way of having the artists who are participating in the production experience firsthand that historical event is one of the most powerful things that theater can do. Right, right. So to switch tracks and go back a little bit, you grew up in Venezuela, gay to Orthodox Jewish parents in a Roman Catholic country at a time and place where homosexuality was neither open or accepted. How has that experience informed you as an artist and what you've chosen to address through your theater work? Well, I think I had the very strange experience of, as you said, being born in a Jewish community, in an Orthodox Jewish home, in a Catholic country, in a very machista country where the definition of masculinity was minuscule. And if you departed from that definition of masculinity, you were immediately named effeminate or gay or queer or fag or all those things. So I think my first experience was realizing, you know, uh, we would go to, to synagogue, the Sabbath, and we would walk the streets with our yarmulkes and people would look at us. So I realized very quickly that, that me and my family and my community, that we were, we were the other. We were different from the rest of the population alongside whom we inhabited Caracas. So immediately, from, I don't remember how early, but I knew that, that, that we were the other. Right? We were a minority inside that country. And then by the time I was nine, and I began to suspect that I was gay, then I quickly realized that, that in the Orthodox Jewish world of the 1970s, homosexuality was not only a sin, but it was a death sentence. Right? There were no portrayals of gay people on TV. There were no portrayals of gay people in books, at least not the books that I read. So all of a sudden I realized that I was a minority within my community. Right? And more than that, there was a way in which a future for me as a homosexual was not possible. Right? Because one of the most important things about narrative is that they create a future for the person listening to the narrative. They tell you what's possible. The only homosexual person I saw was, um, was a trans person who was a sex worker who was in a street corner in Caracas. And at that moment, that image was something that felt very foreign to me. Hmm. But what that makes you do is that it makes you start constructing 
your own system of beliefs. And it makes you start constructing a system of beliefs that will allow you to survive. So when you ask how has that affected the work that I make and how I make it, I think that the, the, the most magical and wondrous thing about making theater is that in that room, you're able to make worlds in which people can exist. And I think that my earliest experiences of deciding, everyone is saying that homosexuality is a sin and it's a malady and it needs to be you know, looked at through the clinical frame and through the medical frame was to, to very early on decide, well, no, right? Albert Camus, in his book, The Rebel, says that every revolution begins with one word. The word is no. And to me, there is something profound about the act of liberation that the word no entails. It means no, I do not believe this paradigm. It means no, I do not believe that what you're saying about my being is correct. No, I will not allow your narrative to define who I am. And that, the corollary of that is I will construct my own narrative that will allow me to survive and thrive. And that's what we do in the theater. And that's what we do in Tectonic Theater Project. And that's what we do. You know, I started my work in the theater as an actor. And I enjoyed that very much. But after a few years, I realized that I was much more interested in having control of the entire narrative than in constructing one single character. And that's why I became a writer and director. I want to be responsible for creating the entire world. I'm just trying to bridge that gap between growing up in that community and then discovering theater, being an actor, being a director, being a writer. Was there pushback from your family? Did you, I know you moved to New York in 87. Was that your way out of that world? And just trying to find out how you go from being the ultimate outsider to finding your community in the theater. Well, what ended up happening was that by the time I was 17 and I had to go to college, I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so my dad said, well, if you're not sure what kind of career you want, why don't you study business administration? Because that'll open the most amount of doors. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I thought that that made sense. So I enrolled into business school at the Universidad Metropolitana in Caracas. And what ended up happening was that the, the first class I had was accounting, and it was at 7 in the morning. And I don't know if it was the time or the fact that it was accounting, but in the middle of the class, I had a panic attack, and I thought, I can't dedicate my life to this. That would be not something that would suit my nature very well. So I ran downstairs, and I went to the extracurricular activities office of the university, and I said, please show me the list of extracurricular activities you have. And at the top of the list was theater. And uh, I enrolled in this theater company, and I was blessed because it was run by a brilliant director who had been influenced by some of the most exciting directors in the world. At the time, Venezuela was a very oil-rich country, and we had a very important international theater festival. And the most brilliant minds from all over the world, uh, the most brilliant writers and directors came to perform in Caracas, and I was able to see some really fantastic work. And the director of that theater company at the university had been taught and influenced by these theater visionaries. So I was very, very, very fortunate. And I started acting and I realized that I had talent for it and that I was good as an actor. And this little theater company, experimental theater company in this university became one of the most important theater companies in Caracas, in Venezuela. In the four years that I was there, we became a force within the theatrical community. In, in the city. And I think that there was something about my parents being a bit 
if they were at the beginning against me being in the theater or not really realizing how can you create a life for yourself, how can you make a living, and there was some discomfort, especially from my dad. Over the course of the four years that I was acting in that company, I started getting the leading roles in the company, and he started seeing my affinity and how happy I was doing it. So after the four years I graduated from college, the conversation about should you do theater, should you not do theater had already been fraught in the, on the stage. They had seen that it was something that I really had to do. Right. Um, so yes, yeah, so I, I left Venezuela and I came to New York to study at the New York University. And, you know, I, for, the, for years I would tell the story that I moved to New York to, because I wanted to get a, a well-rounded education in theater, that I knew how to act but I didn't know uh, much about writing or directing or how to create the whole event. And that's true, right? I needed to take the next step in my career and in my education and in my professional work. But the other part that is true is that 1987, being gay in Venezuela was incredibly difficult. So did I come to New York to further my career in the theater? Absolutely. Did I come to New York to be gay? Yes. Right. That's such an exciting time to be in New York in the late 80s, I mean, I mean, there was so much going on. It was also post-AIDS, but artistically, there was so much going on as well. I mean, what was that experience like? I mean, it must have been exhilarating, but also kind of scary. Exactly. It was exhilarating and terrifying. You know, in 87, it was the heights of the AIDS epidemic. And uh, the test had just come out, but people really knew so little about it. How, how was it transmitted? There were all these myths and all these things. So to arrive in New York in 87, I was 23 and a half, dying to explore my sexuality and dying to explore intimacy with men and to arrive in the middle of a plague where you didn't know what was possible it was a horrible, horrible, horrible time to arrive. But on the other side, as you said, it was a thrilling moment for American theater where a lot of the discoveries of the 70s and early 80s you know, theater companies like Mabu Mines, the Ridiculous Theatrical, the Open Theater, the Living Theater, the Performance Garage, the Worcester Group. It was a time where all of the downtown experimental theater companies were having a, a, a phenomenal moment. So, you know, being able to, to see work on Broadway that was perhaps more traditional and then being at NYU, walking three blocks and seeing the Performance Garage doing a Worcester Group experiment, you know, was thrilling and certainly marked my curiosity in the work and certainly marked what I wanted to do and how I wanted to do it. So, yeah. So in 1991, you founded Tectonic Theater Project along with your now husband, Jeffrey Lahost. Tell us about the symbolism behind the name of your theater company and why you chose the name Tectonic Theater Project. Yes. Um, the, the, the company was born out of a certain amount of dissatisfaction with the theater that we were witnessing around us. Because 90% of the theater, put aside the companies that I just mentioned, but 90% of the theater that you were seeing in New York, and I would venture to say in the rest of America, was grounded in this kind of very old-fashioned realism and naturalism. Right? You would go to the theater and the set would look like a sitcom or like, a, you know, uh, there was always a couch, there was always a sink. I always felt the designers at that time had to take a course in interior design more than in <laughs> theatrical design because it felt so, it was so, so atrociously boring to me. Yeah, very bleak. It was, it was very bleak. And also the sense that 
you know, we are squandering the most powerful element of what theater can do, which is theatricality, right? How do we continue to redefine? How do you speak from the stage? So what that meant for, for us was that we were really interested in a formal questioning of what theater is. We wanted to understand what were the theatrical forms other than realism and naturalism that could further a daring, dazzling conversation with our audiences. And so, so that formal quest led to Tectonic. Tectonic is a laboratory where we would come in and we would try and, and ask the question, what are the theatrical forms that will allow us to have the most visceral, most fantastic relationship to contemporary audiences? So because it was a lot about form and a lot of the conversations we were having were about form, that's why we came up with the name Tectonic. Tectonic is the art and science of form, right? Architecture, architectonic, right? So tectonic means form. So we wanted a name that spoke of our curiosity and our interest in pushing the boundaries of what was formally daring and formally interesting. So that was one reason why we chose the other the, the word tectonic. The other reason is because tectonic also refers to tectonic plates, which is seismic plates, which is what happens when earthquakes occur, that the tectonic plates shift. So in a very youthful bravado, we wanted to shake things up, and we thought it was very tongue-in-cheek to call ourselves tectonic. <laughs> right now, that, that feels a bit quaint, but at the time we thought we were doing something very daring. So tell us about the moment work, which is central to your process within the company. And I was also just curious, is that connected all to Sandy Meisner's work at all, or is this something very different? It's very different than Meisner's, although, although it, we share some ideas in common, but it's very different. Mm-hmm. Meisner is, is focused on finding the truth in the moment-to-moment between actors. Right. Uh, we are interested in finding how the artifact that we call a play, how it operates and how it communicates. And, and you know, the first few years of Tectonic, and this will address the question about moment work, mm-hmm. um, we devoted ourselves to staging plays by other artists who were posing these kind of formal questions. So we were doing a lot of work by Samuel Beckett, mm-hmm. right, who starts a play with a woman up to her waist on earth and dirt. And then in the second act, the dirt has reached her neck, right? That kind of formalism was thrillingly interesting to us. We also did Sophie Treadwell, who was an American experimentalist, uh, the first woman expressionist writer. So we were doing a lot of, of, of work by other playwrights who were experimenting with form. And then we started working with contemporary American playwrights that were also interested in form, like Naomi Izuka, Kirk Marco, people, writers who were themselves uh, concerned with form. But then it hit us that if we were being really rigorous about this, this desire to question theatrical form, it wasn't enough to keep doing pre-existing texts. It became clear that we had to start creating our own texts, texts that were imbued in their DNA with the kind of formal questions that were eliciting our work. And that's when Moment Work was born. Moment Work was a desire to start creating theatrical units of time that helped us create theatrical narratives. So what do I mean by that? The way the theater is done in America, 99% of the time, is that a playwright goes into a room and spends, you know, 10 years writing a play. And we all have an image of what that room looks like, right? It's a room full of cobwebs, 
in empty vodka bottles. <laughs> and after those 10 years, she comes out of the room and she hands the play to a director. And the director goes into a rehearsal room for four weeks of rehearsal and one week of tech, and then you have a production. Spoken in these terms, you can see the pitfalls of that way of creating work. One of the pitfalls is that the theater ends up being very, very grounded in literature, right? Because it begins with a literary object, which is the play, right? It begins with the words that the characters speak to one another. And so the job of the directors and the actors is basically to illustrate and to give life to the words of the playwright. And of course, you know, that form has given us the work of Eugene O'Neill and the work of, you know, we, it has been a very successful way of creating theater. But what we were interested in was, what if instead of starting from the word, what if we started with a theatrical idea? What if the theatrical event, what if the story, the theatrical story, the theatrical narrative begins with a theatrical moment? You know, when you're a sculptor, you don't spend 10 years writing a, a text about the sculpture that you're going to make. You get into the room with the material and you start carving away at the sculpture. For us, the materials of theater are, you know, not only the actor, but what does the set look like? What is the scenic design? What is the sound? What are the lights doing? How are the lights telling the story? How is sound telling the story? How are all of the elements of the stage contribute to create a narrative? So moment work was taking a step in that direction. It was, it's, it's a technique to create theatrical narrative using all the elements of the stage. So using theatrical narratives, what happens when a person comes onto, a man comes onto the stage and there is a wedding dress on a chair and he comes to the wedding dress and he caresses the wedding dress. That's creating an incredible narrative. The audience begins to ask, oh, what happened? What happened to the bride? Is she dead? Is she, you know, is she about to come in? Is the man a trans character who's about to put that dress on, right? Like, how are the ways in which we create narrative that are not entirely reliant on text? And how can those questions help us create a form of theater or a sort of theater or a type of theater that really allows us to create theatrical narratives, to use all of the elements of the stage. That's so interesting. It's almost like dance or improv combined, and it truly embodies the word tectonic. You're starting with movement and... Yes, it's, it's, yes movement is certainly an element of the stage. So is virtuosity. You know, can we start to create a play with a pole dancer who's a virtuosic pole dancer and create a play based on that? Mm-hmm. Can we start a play with a puppet? Can we start a play, that play that was recently done at the Daryl Roth Theater, Blindness, right, which was a series of lights and sounds. There were no actors present. What constitutes a theatrical event, and how do we continue to pose that question? And, and for us at Tectonic, it meant that the first play was built entirely of uh, found material, right? Very John Cage, very... Uh, Tadeusz Kantor, very much people who kind of find an artifact, in our case, text from the transcripts and begin to create a play out of that. Laramie Project was posing a different formal question. How do you create a text by having a theater company go and meet a community and create a play based on that interaction? Um, 33 Variations was a play that was based on a piece of music. Can you create a play 
starting for the piece of music. So what we try to do in Tectonic is always to keep pushing ourselves into what are the different ways in which we can create new works. Our new play called Here There Are Blueberries started from photographs from the concentration camp Auschwitz that uh, were recently discovered. Mm -hmm. um, so that, th those are the kind of questions that we post in our laboratory. And that's why we need a laboratory. Um, when we created Tectonic Theater Project, theater companies were defined by what I call the three S's. Space, right? They needed a physical space. Mm -hmm. They needed a subscription and they needed a season, right? Those are the three S's. And when we started Tectonic Theater Project, we were very keen on not having any of that. We didn't want to have a, a theater space because we didn't want to be landlords. We didn't want to have a subscription because then they will be expecting four plays a year. We didn't have a season because we didn't want to be tied down to having to do four plays a year. You know, if it took us a year to create the Laramie Project, that's what it took us. And that also allowed every cent that we raised in our fundraisers to go directly to the laboratory, to the work. Right. I'm, I'm curious about, specifically, I am my own wife. Um, yes. The project that you did with Doug Wright. Now, in terms of you know, the process, was that, I, I believe that was developed at the Sundance Institute. I just, I would love to know more about how that was developed because I'm, again, I'm not sure if that was part of Tectonic or if this was sort of an outside project. Yes. Um, I Am My Own Wife was a play developed by Tectonic and produced by Tectonic. It was a, a, an interesting way of working because it was the first time in Tectonic's history that a playwright came to us with an idea. And this was a playwright whose training was much more akin to the thing that I was criticizing before. You know, Doug Wright is a Pulitzer and Tony Price winning playwright who until that moment and since has worked by going into a room and writing a play and then coming out and doing it with actors. Right. In this special occasion, he had interviewed a German transvestite called Charlotte von Malstor. And uh, he had collected these interviews and he didn't know, and he started to make them into a play and he got stuck because this German transvestite had survived the Germans and the communists wearing a dress. And so Doug Wright fell in love with her because he felt it was a, a heroine. And um, he wanted to write a play that was going to celebrate her. And in the middle of doing the research, he started finding out things about her that were calamitous, that in order to survive the communists, he had collaborated with the KGB. Hmm. And he froze and he felt, how do I write a play that is so critical of this character that I wanted to celebrate? So he put the play aside for a few years. And then the people at Sundance said, we've heard about this play that is in your drawer. Why don't you come to Sundance? and tried to develop it. And Doug Wright is a dear friend, and he called me and he said, I'm stuck, why don't you come and we can go to Sundance and bring an actor and play. And so we did, and when we got to Sundance, I tried to fracture a bit of the way that Doug Wright had been working. And what we did is we started using moment work to break into the tapes that he had recorded with Charlotta. And so the first day of rehearsal, what I said is, Doug and Jefferson Mays, the brilliant actor who went on to win a Tony for that performance, and I, I said, each one of us is going to make a theatrical moment, either with a costume or with a book, or, but it has to be a theatrical moment using an element of the stage. And so we started improvising that way. And so 
um, I was very interested in what it was like for a man with, with hair on his chest to put on a dress. So my moment was about myself getting on stage, getting down to my underwear, and then putting on a dress, and then look at myself in a mirror, seeing the hair on my chest through, you know, come over the dress, and what that did, and how do we construct gender, and how do we construct identity. So it was a moment without any text. I think I played some music, and then I got undressed, and I put on the dress, and, and I looked at myself in the mirror with this dress. Jefferson Mays, Charlotte von Malsdorf was a collector of furniture. Uh, and she ended up having a museum of furniture that was a kind of curated German history through the furniture. So Jefferson Mays went to his room that night and he carved out of cardboard four or five pieces of furniture that were in Charlotte's museum. And the next day he came in with a shoebox and he used her accent and he said, Welcome to my museum. My name is Charlotte von Malzorf and I want to show you some of the pieces that I have collected. And he opened the box, the shoebox, and he took out a sofa. And he said, this sofa I gathered when the Nazis came. They took Jewish property and they threw it on the street. And this is a piece that I collected from the street that belonged to a Jewish family. So he gave us the whole tour of the museum using these cardboard pieces that he had carved. Right. And it was dazzling. And Doug Wright um, brought a book called The Gay Guide to Berlin. And in Charlotte's voice, he said, when the ball, when the Berlin fall back fell, I went to West Berlin to see. And this is what I saw. And he started reading the different gay bars that were in Berlin at the time. Um, and so those were the moments that we made. We made those three moments, and those three moments ended up in the play. So for Doug, it was a departure of how he had been working, but it allowed him to reconnect with the character of Charlotte. Uh, and by the time those three-week workshops were done in Sundance, we had the first act of a play. What's interesting to me is you use such experimental methods and your subject matter is often so controversial and, and difficult, yet you've had so much commercial success. I Own My Own Wife ended up winning multiple Tonys, the Pulitzer. I mean, it was so huge. Do you consider yourself an outsider in the theater community, in the Broadway community? It's a hard question to answer because, as you say, Tectonic has always felt that we wanted our work to speak to the map. We wanted to speak to large numbers of people. We didn't want to make elitist work. We wanted mm -hmm. to make work that spoke to large swaths of the population. So we want to use the word populist in the best possible light. How do we create work that speaks to large numbers of people? Because our goal, our very ambitious goal, was to participate in a national dialogue not only in a local dialogue. And the, the, the wondrous thing about, about that is that, you know, when, when President Obama uh, passed the Matthew Shepard Current Prevention Bill, he invited Tectonic Theater Project to the White House to witness the signing of the bill. Wow. Because he understood that the company's efforts had an impact in arriving at that bill. And so, yes, I, I thrive to create work that is very popular. Whether I am an outsider or an insider in, our, in the theater community, I'm not sure how to answer that question. I have been at it for so long that I think it's impossible to remain an outsider. Right, right. <laughs> you also directed Bengal Tiger in Baghdad Zoo by Rajiv Joseph, which famously starred Robin Williams in his Broadway debut as a talking tiger. This was a very risky production to bring to Broadway as it tackled the ruthlessness of war 
a war that we were very much in. Can you tell us about that and what drew you to this subject matter? That was, that was a, a production that, it, although it was not a tectonic theater project production, it was a production that as soon as I read the play, I found a kinship with Rajiv Joseph. I thought this playwright is asking a lot of the same questions that we are asking at Tectonic. It is a play, it was based on a real event about when we invaded Iraq. One of the bombs fell on the zoo and the people in Iraq were hungry and they were coming into the zoo to steal the animals. And so the American army put two soldiers to guard a Bengal tiger. And one of the soldiers stuck his hand in the cage and the Bengal tiger ate his hand and the soldier killed the tiger. This is a true story. And Rajiv Joseph's take on it was, number one, that the Bengal tiger was played by a human that didn't look at all like a tiger. And then when the tiger is killed, the ghost of the tiger begins to haunt the people who were there, the Americans. I mean, it was such a far-fetched idea, and it was so theatrical and so thrillingly imaginative that I felt I had to do it. At the time, Center Theater Group, Michael Ritchie, was the artistic director. He said, he read the play, he said, I don't understand it, but if there's somebody who can direct it, it's you. <laughs> and I don't know if that was a compliment or, a, or, a, or an insult. <laughs> Um, but um, we worked on it, and, and it was a very, very rewarding experience. And yeah, we, we, we arrived on Broadway with Robin Williams, and it was not his first outing on Broadway. I think he had done... He, he had just done comedy, for, though, right? It was his first play, I think, on Broadway. Well, he had done Waiting for Godot before with Mike Nichols. Oh. So he had already done that on Broadway, but it was his return to the stage after a very long absence. And... Very sadly, it ended up being the last play that he was in as on, on stage. Yeah. I want to just go ahead a little bit. This actually very recently in New York, you did Seven Deadly Sins. I believe that began in Miami in the fall of 2020, just as COVID was happening. There was no theater going on at this time. And you decided to come out with this very unconventional way of presenting theater. I'd love to just know more about that and, and the decision to go in this direction, especially during COVID. Well, the idea wasn't mine. It was an artist by the name of Michel Hausman. And Michel Hausman did the production of The Seven Deadly Sins. It was his uh, brainchild. And he did it in Miami very successfully. He invited me to write one of the plays. And the idea was that we were starred for theater. How could we bring theater back and do it in a way that was safe? And his idea was he realized that there were a lot of stores that had got out of business in Miami. And so he took over seven storefronts he commissioned seven playwrights each to write about a scene and he had the actors inside the storefronts and the audience outside the storefront looking in listening with earbuds with electronic devices and the audiences were outside and they were they, they were wearing a mask even outside the play was very successful in miami did very well and because michelle is a friend i said may i borrow this idea and do it in New York. And he said, yes. So I kept my play and then Tectonic Theater Project hired six new writers to write new plays. And it was one of the most thrilling experiences of my life because people were so hungry mm. to come to the theater. And we took over the meatpacking district. We created seven plays with seven astonishing American playwrights, six astonishing American playwrights and me. And, uh, and the audience was thrilled, thrilled to be able to be outdoors, to be watching a play. It was 
was really thrilling, really, really thrilling. We sold out within the first couple of weeks, and then we had to keep adding chairs outside. But the beautiful thing of having audiences outdoors, listening to a play while muggles were walking around them, you know, wondering what was going on was wonderful. I love it. Are you bringing it anywhere else? Are you? We're, we're hoping to bring it to LA and then London is the, the plan right now. Oh, please bring it to that LA. That would be exciting, we have, yeah. We have nothing like that. that we could use <laughs> please. We'd love it. So what are you thinking about now? I mean, socially and politically, so much is going on and there's such a strong sociopolitical divide in this country. How are you or are you addressing this current climate in and through your work? It's a very interesting time about what is it that the audience, there are two ways to ask that question. How can we participate in this very, very troublesome time? Right. Very, very, very troublesome time. It's the time where our country has been the most divided since the Civil War. It's a time when the forces of fascism and the forces of right-wing extremism are at our doorstep. One of the things that I always loved about the Laramie Project is that no matter whether if you were in the right or the left, you would hear your points of views portrayed on stage. And one of the reasons why I think it has had the success that it said is that no matter what you believe, you will see your ideas portrayed. And so it creates, at least it's a certain kind of dialogue. I think we're so far apart from the other side right now that I don't know how you create a play that would successfully do that. I mean, the, the greatest problem with America right now is that we have ceased to believe in science. Yes. So all of the accomplishments that have occurred since the, since the Enlightenment have been reversed. And the most important thing for two humans to be able to have a conversation is that they have to be able to share a context that they both agree on. But if half of that dialogue is people who do not believe in science and who do not believe in facts, then how do you create a basis for a dialogue? So I think that's some of the questions that we're asking at Tectonic. The other part of it is that I I am really keen in asking the questions, what are audiences longing for? You know, historically, I never ask that question because I'm afraid of pandering to what the audience needs. But I think we're in a moment after being almost two years now without art and without theater, that we have to take into account what do audiences want on our stages? Not to pander to them, but to, to be able to use their hunger and meet it with the most radiant and interesting discourses that we can provide. And also, since you explore so much about form, I would imagine this is an opportunity to think about form in a very different way, as you did with Seven Deadly Sins, but also answering some of those questions is, what do we do now? given the, the restrictions. Exactly. I, I think exactly. And, and Seven Deadly Sins was a, a real attempt at, ha- at dealing with that. Mm-hmm. You know, the event of, of Seven Deadly Sins was as important as the, the stories that the plays were telling. You know, it was a, a group of humans walking through the streets of the meatpacking district, looking at art together and, and being reminded why we gathered around the fire and started telling stories. Right. Right. Stories of a plague. What's next for you? Well, right now I am working on a musical that is going to come to Broadway in the spring called Paradise Square. It tells the story of the Five Points area of Manhattan during the Civil War, where Irish immigrants and African Americans, both escaped slaves and free people of color, were living together, getting married, and creating this very, very radical community down there where, where blacks and whites were living together and, and making music together. 
So that's the next big thing. So it's a very large musical. It has over 30 actors. And wow. so, yeah, it's a, it's a big project. It opens in Chicago in November, and then it moves to Broadway in February. So if you could, just in one short phrase, tell us what brings you hope? Our communal belief that stories are important because stories is the greatest method of delivering ideas and delivering, delivering our, our hearts and our minds and creating a synergy with other human beings. So the fact that we are all continuing to create stories is a hopeful thing to me because it means that, that we still crave to understand the other's experience. Hmm. Thank you. At the end of this, Moises, we do this thing called the quick draw. Uh-huh. Six questions, 60 seconds, one word answers. Okay, what are you reading right now? Uh-huh. The New York City Draft Riots by Ivor Bernstein. Current favorite album? Hamilton. Okay, most underrated artist? David Wojnarowicz. Ah, great. Favorite musical? Sunday in the Park with George. Okay, favorite work of art? It could be your own. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The Thinker by Rodin. Huh. Favorite guilty pleasure? Um, Currently, the show Fitness on television. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. This is great. Thank you. Thank you so much, much. Moises. This is my pleasure. Great chatting with both of you. Wonderful. Thank you. Likewise. Thanks for listening to Art Loss. I'm Alex Zappa. And I'm Robin Rosenfeld. Follow us on Instagram at Art Loss Pod. And subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a comment and give us a rating. We'll be back soon with more. Bye. Art Loss is produced by Alex Zappa and Robin Rosenfeld. Music is by Voidcore. And the episode you just heard was recorded in Los Angeles.